This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This week's podcast is brought to you by PostPeakLiving.com. Enroll now in our new e learning version of the Uncrash course a comprehensive six-week program that will prepare you in finances, shelter, food storage, post-peak jobs, transportation, and much more. Or you can sign up for our January instructor-guided Uncrash course. Find out more at postpeakliving.com. Hey everyone, it's Duncan Crary. You're listening to the Kunstler Cast, a weekly conversation featuring James Howard Kunstler about the tragic comedy of suburban sprawl. Jim is the author of The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, and World Made by Hand. Well, Jim, it's great to see you again. We're, uh, we're back in the, uh, the Craratorium. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Today's topic is um, not topical, actually. I want to talk to you about college campuses and college architecture and you've never you've never taught as a college professor have you Jim thank god no and yeah. most of the guys i know you know my age who have done it just are suffering terribly you know they're they're mistreated and and they you know they're hired as adjuncts and they don't get any benefits and yeah. they they're thrown away they're cast off like old banana skins after like 7 years in the trenches and you know, academia is a rough racket these days, and it's going to get a lot rougher out there. So you wouldn't even do it? You wouldn't take a little, you know, let's say teach one class? And- oh, at this point in my life, I, I would do it maybe in my own town, but I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to drive, you know, 100 miles a week to do it for one day. Forget about it. Not yeah. interested. Yeah. Okay, well, we have a listener uh, call kind of on this topic, so let me just let the listener set it up. Hey, Jim and Duncan. This is Justin Ritchie calling from British Columbia. I was listening to the episode about Boston, and you mentioned college architecture, and I definitely want to call in and leave some comments from my own experience. I've been in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia for about three or four months now, and I've really been impressed by the university's approach to architecture. UBC is a really beautiful campus, even though it's on one of the most beautiful pieces of land in North America. The building exteriors are really stark and uninspiring. But when you go into the interior parts of the building, there's some very impressive spaces. Like walking into the Forestry Science Building, it's designed to look like a rainforest that was native to the region before the city overtook the area. And it's an absolutely beautiful experience. But if you looked at it from the outside, it was absolutely stark. And you'd never guess it. When I was at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where I did my undergrad, the approach was to build grand, enormous buildings that were mostly architecturally uninspired, but just enormous and grand. Uh, but the interior classroom suffered aesthetically and functionally. It was like going to class in an operating room. And I really think that the space in the college that which college courses are held in really dictates a lot of problems and successes of the university environment. I'd love to hear you guys discuss this further on a future show. What is going on with college campuses today? You, your eyesore of the month dealt with a college I frequently building. feature college buildings, especially new ones, on the eyesore of the month department of my website because they, they seem to represent what's worst in current architectural practice and, and in our culture as a whole. But what this guy said that was most interesting to me was 
this distinction he made between the exterior and the interior and how wonderful the buildings at the University of British Columbia were because once you were inside of them, they were, it's, he made it sound like they were theme park rides. Yeah, rainforest you know? inside. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like going into some uh, movie-themed ride at Universal Studios where who remembers what the outside of the Universal Studio building looks like even, you know? I mean, that's not the whole, it's the whole point is that it's not about that. It's about the artifice that occurs in the inside. So... What 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 he is establishing now is this new expectation in the younger generations that the outside is meaningless, and that you know we should actually be surprised if anybody might assert that the the outside had meaning, or to take it a step further, that the public realm associated with the outside of a college building, namely a college campus, should be meaningful, and the. the the trouble is, is that it's desperately important that both the inside and the outside be meaningful. I'm going through my mind. Movie theaters, just a box. But you're in there and it creates this world inside it. I mean, we spend so much time in the virtual world on the internet. And you look at people, they create these avatars, these little cartoons of themselves that they put next to their blog comment posts and whatnot. It's like we create virtual versions of ourselves that look great, but our... Our, our real versions of ourselves are yes, the avatars are all sleek. You know, the, the avatars go to the gym. I don't know about the people <laughs> they represent. But, you know, by the way, I went past a building today that was so horrifying. Yeah. It was a college campus building that was so horrifying. It, it kind of blew my mind. And I hadn't even done any uh, uh, ganja before I drove past it, you know. It was amazing. I, I wonder if you can tell me which one it is on the uh, SUNY campus. Oh, SUNY, SUNY Albany. Albany. Yeah. Well, you were probably looking at a newer building that's like a wavy uh, metallic glass, uh, reflective glass building. Yeah. Well, it's Brand that new. new kind of environmental science, uh, alternative energy, green monstrosity that they built, which is, by the way, about the size of a GM plant. Yeah. Okay. And it's got all of these uh, smokestacks and weird ventilating things coming off of it with these great billows of steam coming off. It looks like a kind of an updated Dickensian nightmare of a dark satanic mill, except for the fact that the building's mostly white. You know, it's got like this white terracotta or, or metallic uh, enameled exterior paneling on it where the windows aren't. And it's enormous. And, you know, one of the things that it should tell us is that the techno-triumphalism trap that we're falling into is so deadly. In the educational realm, I mean, it's becoming programmed into all the young people that we're going to we're going to techno our way through the bottleneck that, that we're facing and that, that, you know, we're going to do it by creating grandiose tech projects. And it's just nuts. Yeah, well, that campus you mentioned SUNY Albany is a terrible college it's campus. one of the worst in the in the world and yeah. it's an interesting story because it was it's this giant extremely formalistic kind of orthogonal pattern that is it's a it's a big rectangle very formally broken up into four quadrants with four skyscrapers at, at one each at the center of each quadrant and a kind of 
band of classrooms and offices in this mega structure on a podium that's elevated above the ground level that goes around the skyscrapers. And it was designed by Edward Durrell Stone in the 50s. You know, and this is, by the way, is a uh, campus that's designed for an incredibly hot climate. And all, you know, this megastructure that this huge orthogonal megastructure is basically a set of loggias or, or colonnades or open-aired pavilions that were obviously intended to shade people from a merciless hot sun and from periodic monsoons or whatever, you know, other kind of weather stuff they have to deal with. But at the same time, it admits all of this blowing snow and wind and ice. So, you know, if you're living in a cold climate, it's really not that groovy. And of course, the centerpiece of the whole thing is a huge fountain system. And in this climate, you know, it only runs about, you know, 11 weeks out of the year. Probably not even, you know. It's nuts. But um, I want to get back to an earlier era and talk about the uh, college campus uh, from the great period of American college campus design. I had this experience a bunch of years ago. I was given a lecture at the Columbia University School Graduate School of Real Estate Development, believe it or not. They have such a school. It, it's some way maybe associated with the architecture school. I'm not even sure, but the, it was a very small department there, but I, I went there. And I got there on the first really beautiful day of spring, you know, in early April. And the interior quadrangle at the center of the Columbia campus in Upper Manhattan was a wonderful uh, design and construction by the great leading Beaux-Arts architects of America of the day, of the turn of the 19th to 20th century. And that was uh, McKim, Mead, and White, who uh, the firm that was responsible for many other great things in America. And, uh, you know, they also were the great pioneers of the so-called American Renaissance Greco-Roman revival uh, that, we, that was used so commonly around America in courthouses and school buildings, you know, the, the columns and all the references to Greek and Roman history. And the Columbia campus, the heart of the campus designed by them, is this wonderful intimate kind of square or quad. And, um, you know, it, it leads up to, this, to the steps of the low library and many of the great departmental buildings of the university. And on this spring day that I went there, it was this magnificent outdoor public room with a green at the center and all these young people basking in the sun like seals. And at the center, of course, the kids were throwing Frisbees in the, on the green part. And there was just so much life in this quadrangle. And, and it, it was a public space that was not only well-defined by the buildings acting as walls of an outdoor public room, but beautifully defined as well as being well-defined. Defined with a sense of wonderful order and decorum. And beauty, consciously, you know, with the, with the Corinthian columns, with the capitals and the acanthus leaves and all of this, this wonderful I- invocation of the universe, nature, our connection to, to these things, the connection of all things to each other, you know, which is sort of at the heart of what education should be about, is the learning, the, the understanding of how the connections in our world work, and, and, and to be informed about this by the buildings around us. 
And, you know, what we're seeing in our time is just one discontinuity after another, one intrusion, one object that interrupts the flow of our understanding that things are connected, of relations of things to each other. So you see this constantly. And for, for me, one of the wonderful laboratories of this is the Skidmore College campus. And Skidmore College is a private four-year college with about 2,500 students located in my town. So, you know, I'm in and around it all the time. It's kind of hard to avoid. But they have some wonderfully, wonderfully monstrous new buildings there and, and assemblages of buildings. You know, my, my favorite of the moment being the Tang Museum which was their attempt to like put some kind of a big-time art presence uh, on the campus. And they hired this peckerhead from uh, the Southwest out of the region. You know, they had kind of a, uh, a competition, I guess. And all the various uh, Starkitect firms offered up their, their visions. And for some reason, they chose Ant Ant Antoine Pradoc from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he's kind of a hocus-pocus meister, so he comes to Saratoga, and he puts on this sort of show where he hangs out for a while and, you know, runs around sort of as though he were had a divining rod, you know, to try to get the vibe off of the terrain. <laughs> and then he comes up with this cockamamie story about how, you know, the granite of the earth meets the, <laughs> the coldness of the sky. And, all, and it's just sheer metaphysical bullshit, yeah. you know? It's just as, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, author of The Black Swan, would say, just some cockamamie narrative, you know, that he's cooking up because they're paying him thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to provide them with some justification for the stunt that he's about to, to offer, which ends up being a building with six backs and no front. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, it's sort of a building, sort of this weird starfish-shaped building with all these, you know, arm-like uh, uh, high-tech steel and paneled aluminum things that come off of it. It's got all these backs and no front. Plus, the Skidmore campus uh, is deployed around a kind of a ring road because it's, it was all built from scratch on an old estate after 1965. And it's basically a suburban office park format. So um, <laughs> there's no real kind of front door for what, what this building should be. But the funny thing is, is that the, the elevation or side of the building that faces the ring road, right, which is the only real street there on the whole campus, what you get on that elevation is the dumpster and the loading dock, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then there's this one final thing that's lovely about the whole thing is that uh, on about four or five sides, they have these giant ramps coming down from the, the top of the building. They're only about two feet wide and they're covered with stainless steel cladding of some kind. And they're the most incredibly magnificent skateboard stunt object that you've ever seen. Yeah, that's the one plus side to all this terrible architecture. It's great for skateboarders. Yeah, and, and I'm just like wondering, when, when are they going to have the first like $30 million lawsuit from some kid who's become a quadriplegic from running his skateboard, you know, three stories down this ramp? It hasn't happened yet, and I don't see them really policing it, and they haven't even put up any obstructions or finials on it to prevent people from doing that. But, I mean, sooner or later, actually, it'll be more, it won't be a skateboard. It'll be some kid coming down on a dinner tray from the cafeteria, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. But anyway, getting back to the Beaux-Arts, this period around, you know, between 1890 and 1920, 
which coincided with the City Beautiful movement in America. And this high consciousness that, you know, we must create a public America, a civic America that is worthy of our new standing in the world as a great nation. And so as a consequence of that, you get wonderful places, wonderful civic constructions, beautiful buildings that are full of decorum, pride, beauty, all consciously constructed, great formal things. And, you know, it's no surprise that we find ourselves now in this state of terrible decadence and disintegration, both as a nation and as a culture, if you can make a distinction between the two. And all the stuff that we build reflects that. You know, it it reflects even just the basic discontinuity of our break from our former greatness. Speaking of discontinuity, Jim, there's so much discontinuity within college campuses. The buildings that they erect don't even match the other buildings that they've built. Oh, sure. It just seems like such a squandered opportunity and so typically American. Here you have at a college campus, you have the chance to create an entire ensemble of structures that can complement each other and work with each other. And that's exactly what we did, by the way. Before World War II. Yeah. And you have the, I mean, you have the opportunity to hire the architects. You tell them what to make the, you know, you can't always yeah. control what your neighbor is going to build down the a city block from you, but you can on a college campus and they still can't create. Well, part of the baggage, of course, intellectually of our time is the diversity idea, which, uh, you know, it starts out as a social justice idea, but it, then it en- ends up leaking and infecting, leaking into and infecting the arts. And you get this idea that, um, uh, you know, you can't have any unities of uh, common culture anywhere. Everything's got to be its own cultural thing at every level of the hierarchy. The buildings have to make a statement that I'm separate, I have a separate identity, and, and uh, I'm asserting my, you know, narcissistic selfhood. Town-gown relations. It's not uncommon for the university to... And, and the students to not have good relations with the, the town as a municipality and possibly the townies. But one thing that's happening a lot, uh, I've noticed, is that colleges are starting to buy up the properties off campus and rehab them and use them for offices and student housing. And uh, I guess that's a good thing. I mean, c- colleges sometimes are really wealthy and the towns they're in are sometimes really poor. And so they're a pretty large portion of the economy. I'd like to see them more collaborative. Well, you know, I think there's something else going on that you're missing, is that more often than not, they're buying up this property for parking. Yeah, that's true. uh, And it turns out that they're actually very bad institutional neighbors because of their elevated status in the culture as universities and places of learning. They're also very much like hospitals, which are also bad neighbors in uh, many American places because they relentlessly buy up the adjoining property in their endless search for parking, and then they create these zones around themselves, which are very inhospitable zones. However, there's one, one other thing you can say about what you, what you were just mentioning, um, I've noticed, because I've gone to so many of these towns, especially the big state university towns, is that they invariably turn the neighborhood into slums. Yeah. You know, because they've gotten so huge, you're seeing such an appalling hypertrophy uh, 
such overgrowth, such excessive expansion. And uh, they, they get more and more students and there's no place to put them and the dorms don't accommodate them anymore. So the students get shoved out into the adjoining neighborhoods, which then become abused by students who are housed there because students, you know, they're young, they're careless, they don't own the property, they don't give a damn about it. The landlords more and more understand the equation. They understand that they're basically strip mining old properties for their rental values. And they don't really, you know, they don't particularly care about how beaten up it gets. So you go to places like Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Columbus, Ohio, you know, where the State Universities of Michigan and Ohio are, and even Berkeley, California, the district around UC Berkeley uh, can be pretty gruesome in some places. But that's largely been uh, an issue of overgrowth. If you go back to an earlier period when the colleges could accommodate most of the people who attended them. You know, I think that there was a much more civil relationship between the neighborhoods and the, and the uh, campuses. There, there's another really interesting thing that I saw, and this was at uh, Ohio State University in Columbus, where they also had a great Beaux-Arts campus that was very formal and uh, had been designed during that great period of American campus design. They had gates at all the compass points, you know, an east gate, a west gate, etc. And where the east gate was, they built the new Wexner Center for the Arts, which was their new modern art museum designed by Peter Eisenman. And Eisenman had concocted another one of these cockamamie narratives for why he was doing what he was doing with the Wexner Center. It was called the Wexner Center because Leslie Wexner, who was a great chain store magnate for women's clothing, um, gave him the money to do it. It gave the university the dough. So um, Peter Eisenman comes up with this idea that the building represents the differential between the first grid of the city and the compass points that it was aimed at. And the later grid of the city, which was established, let's say, in the 1830s when they reformed their street and block plan, and then its orientation towards the airport 17 miles away. You know, totally cockamamie, metaphysical bullshit story. The net effect of it was that they destroyed the east gate of the Ohio State University campus. They more or less obliterated it and placed the museum there as an obstruction where the grand entrance used to be. So, you know, there's just like no end to the, to the mischief that these guys are causing. It makes you wonder if they already have these designs and then they spend time concocting the story just to fit some design they already created. Well, the, it could easily be the case. I wouldn't say that it necessarily is. But, I mean, since what we're basically talking about is, you know, fraud <laughs> you know, or emperor's new clothes type behavior. Yeah. You know, it's all basically a big lie and, uh, and pretense and pretension. But you're a heretic if you say anything. We're going to say it, and we're going to say it loud and proud, Duncan. <laughs> People, These guys suck. What fascinates me, uh, you know, I, I, I'm serenely convinced of many things that are, that, were, uh, that are coming down at us, of course. You know, it's part of my job is to forecast stuff like that. But one of the things that I'm quite sure that we're leaving behind is this, uh, this age of pretense and bullshit and emperor's new clothes behavior and irony that attends a lot of it, you know, and that 
we're going to be entering an age where if people, if you can't make yourself comprehensible in a straightforward way, doing your shit in your culture, that your culture is going to reject that because we're going to be too close to the bone. We're, we're not going to have the, the money to waste. We're not going to have the capital to throw away. We're not going to have the energy to waste on this kind of, on, on telling ourselves these, these cockamamie stories just to, pretend that we're supernatural gurus you know we're done with that we don't know it yet and you know the trouble is where the campuses are concerned is that um the whole college system as it exists today is just another one of those complex systems that will tend to become uh, unstable and fail as as we get into increasing trouble with uh, resource scarcity and capital scarcities and all of the things that I associate with the long emergency, in other words, you know we're we're, we're heading into a kind of uh, a collapse of higher ed as we know it today, as this giant you know institutional Cuisinart blender that just you know, you input so many people and, you know, you extrude them out the other end as graduates. You know, we're done with that. And it's hard to say what college may be if it exists at all. For You know, as I said in the Long Emergency book, and as I continue to maintain, you know, I think it has two ways of working out. One will be that it will become once again an elite experience for a very limited strata of the population. And the other is that even that will be so resented by the people who are newly foreclosed from participating in it, that it won't even be able to function as that. So, you know, we may enter a period where higher education actually goes underground. And if people are going to become educated in a higher way, it may mean that they have to read Greek and, 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 and have tutors and mentors You know, it may be a a totally different process and far more individual and individuated than it is now. Because one thing it's not going to be is a mass consumer activity. Yeah, and everything I really know today I learned after college, you know, on the job and from talking to adults in bars and from talking to you on this show. I I don't really feel like I walked walked out of college having learned anything. A whole lot. I felt like it was just a four-year period where I'm supposed to just get older. Well, you know what blew my mind in college? Yeah. I, I had a pretty checkered career. I was a, a terrible high school student, and I couldn't get into a decent college. I was rejected from all the colleges I applied to in the winter of my uh, senior year of high school. Which, did you talk back to your teachers, or were you... Oh, I did everything wrong, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't do my homework, uh... I did show up mostly, but I, I, I was not interested. I, 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 you know, high school bored the shit out of me. Yeah. Anyway, and I went to a good high school. Anyway, um, so it, I graduated from high school and, uh, you know, I was out at the beach that summer of 1966 and my friends were all telling me, dude, you, well, they didn't say dude back then. They said, man. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, man. They said, hey, man, you better get yourself into college. Because the Vietnam War is ramping up, and your ass is going to get sent over to Vietnam, and you'll get shot. Yeah. So uh, I applied to the only test that I scored well on in the whole battery of senior year tests was the New York State Region Scholarship Exam. And uh, so I figured I could get into the state university. So I applied to three of them, and uh, two of them sent me 
applications, and one sent me a dorm contract, meaning I didn't even have to apply. Yeah. And so I ended up going to that college for no other reason than sheer accident. And I was a little younger, too. You know, I was 17 when I went away to college. And I go to the registrar's office, and they say, hey, man, you only have to go to two classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays and three on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I thought, are you kidding me? Two classes a day? You know, what do you do the rest of the time? I had come from this school, this high school, where not only did I have a full academic load of seven classes a day, but on top of that, they stuck you in an art studio or a, a music studio for an extra two hours a day. You know, we were there for like, I don't know, nine, ten hours a day. And all of a sudden, I'm in college, and you go to two classes a day, three classes a day. I thought, this is ridiculous. And, you know, it, it, and it was ridiculous. I mean, we, you know, I spent all my time goofing off, at least my freshman year. And then I was in the State University in a period of time when Governor Nelson Rockefeller was throwing immense amounts of money into the system. So it was kind of exciting, in a way, to be in that system at that time. You know, now, I don't know, it's probably just another dumbass school. But, um, uh, you know, they were hiring loads of faculty, and they created a whole new department while I was there of uh, a theater department, and they were recruiting heavily, and they recruited me, and uh, so I spent basically my college career in showbiz, you know, putting on shows, and, uh, you know, it, it was kind of silly. I mean, it was like going to summer camp. But listen, I, I do want to make one other point, which is much as I am disparaging my college career and, and college generally as it's done in America, I got to say, I had a lot of fun. It was <laughs> a good time. I had a great time. Made a lot of friends, partied, right. um, you know, I did, did int- and I did learn a few things. I did have a few good teachers too. Yeah. So it, was, it wasn't, it was by no means a worthless experience for me, but, you know, it was not very rigorous. Yeah, I, my girlfriend's a... Uh teaching assistant while she's getting her graduate degree at state school. And these are college kids who are asking her to take makeup exams, you know, endless, you know, do-overs and makeups. It's just, that's just a joke to me. I mean, this whole country is, what, do we think we're going to get a do-over on this? That's the way we've been educated. Well, we need a new national slogan. And and I recommend that the new slogan should be, it's the thought that counts. Yeah, I know. So... not only is the education experience inefficient, but the, the mechanics of a college campus in America are very inefficient. A lot of them are automobile dependent. You oh, need absolutely. They're to- designed like office parks. Uh, you know, I, I saw a couple of really fascinating examples of this that uh, sort of demonstrated different elements. One was when I was at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana a couple of years ago. Uh, they have a big architecture school there, and I was given a spiel. And they have a wonderful turn-of-the-century Beaux-Arts mall. And by mall, I don't mean a shopping mall. I mean a very large public space that is, in effect, a huge elongated quadrangle that has buildings deployed along the edge that goes on for, I don't know, a, a third of a mile or a half a mile. And where it begins... Uh, at the old, I guess the old uh, main administration building, you know, which is one of those wonderful old formal kind of Midwestern buildings with a tower, you know, a bell tower in the center. You know, there's sort of a, a conventional format from the 19th century. So the great quad of the University of Illinois or the great mall, whatever they call it, proceeds from there. And there's this sequence of wonderful 
Greco-Roman, grand, beautiful buildings that go down the mall. And then you get about a third of a mile down, and you can see exactly where World War II ended, and everything starts falling apart. You know, the relationships start disintegrating. They don't follow the same build-to line anymore along the sidewalk on each side of this greensward that extends from west to east or something. You know, the setbacks become all different. The buildings don't have the same cornice line anymore. You know, and one of the things that I'm trying to get across here, which I haven't articulated, is very important. The reason that this diversity monomania doesn't work is that you really need what I call orders of unity to pull an ensemble like this together. And, and what that, that means is you have some basic fundamental rules about how the buildings are going to behave. And then within that set of unities, you can have all kinds of varied expression. But it really helps to have those fundamental orders of unity in operation. And that's one of the reasons that these places, you know, at their best... In the, you know, in the pre-war designs that were, are so strong, so sturdy, why they hang together so beautifully. Well, Jim, I feel like that happens uh, on the educa- you know, metaphorically on the educational level as well, where we teach uh, the Simpsons uh, in, you know, on the same level as Shakespeare. Yeah. And you, know, you can just take any area that interests you today, study it, write a thesis about it, and it's, it's equally as important. And I, I didn't feel well, like one, one of the problems with, uh, you know, with, with that, um, uh, I don't know what we would call it, mentality, or that, that, you know, the, that view of things is that it destroys hierarchical relationships. And, of course, hierarchical relationships now are considered to be verboten because, you know, we associate them with the bad elements of the social justice story or social injustice. And, we, you know, we've been striving to eliminate hierarchy socially. But there are other elements of hierarchy where things are necessary because the universe tends to be organized in a hierarchical manner. And, uh, you know, a a lot of the disciplines and, and, and epistemologies and ways of understanding things need to be understood hierarchically, and we refuse to do that. Um, but I want to get back to something we were talking t- about um, uh, a little bit earlier. I said that there was another example of something I saw that, you know, uh, displayed all of these terrible discontinuities, and that was um, being at Iowa State University. This is exactly one of those land-grant diploma mills out in the Midwest that had most of its growth in the period after World War II, and in fact, mostly after 1960 or 1970, in which you've had this real, you know, hypertrophy, where this massive kind of, you know, the campus starts metastasizing and becomes this tumor-like cancerous thing, this organism. And out there, they also had a bunch of severely uh, engineered ring roads and through roads in and around the campus. And the main drag of the campus was a six-laner. Really? They oh, have it was a, hideous. They have a highway going through. Yeah, basically a highway, although, you know, they did have cross streets on it. And, they, you know, it was elaborately uh, signalized and everything. And it had, did have crosswalks. But it was like the Las Vegas Strip. 
with uh, with these gigantic megastructures, uh, you know, the departmental megastructures deployed on either side. And it was just horrifying. You know, uh, if there's any kind of recipe for agoraphobia, you know, that's it. And it, that, that pattern is pretty much repeated all over the nation. You know, you see the same thing at Michigan State in Lansing and the same thing at, uh, you know, the University of Kansas. It, it's everywhere. Those are massive institutions as well. My my mother went to Nebraska. You mentioned Columbus, or I'm sorry, Ohio State. I think is yeah. the largest or one of the largest. Well, it's right up it's there. It's sixty thousand students. I think it's huge. You mentioned earlier you you don't think college is going to be run this way in the future, and I don't. No way. And there's no way it can be run at this scale. And you know 60, what we're going to see with this is uh, another example of the psychology of previous investment where we've put so much into constructing these uh, this infrastructure for education that w- we can't imagine letting go of it or having to uh, you know change it or reform it or give it up or do it differently so you know you'll see this will be another battleground for the campaign to, to sustain the unsustainable but as far as the buildings go you know as long as the, we started out with a discussion of the physical form of the college campuses. And as far as the buildings go, you know, they are in their own way expressing all of the discontinuities and failures and instabilities and maybe even invoking the, uh, uh, you know, kind of the death of the system just in, in the way they look and behave. Well, you said on a previous podcast that empires tend to build their, their largest monuments to, their, to themselves right before they collapse, right? Yeah, and, and I, I think that's true. Colleges are getting huge, and the fiascos they're pulling with architecture are getting outrageous. Yes, ever more monumentally monstrous yeah. and horrifying. Now, you said on your TED Talk, and you may have said this in other places, that America is going to, if we keep building stuff like this, America is going to be a place not worth defending, right? Am I... Well, I I guess that, you know, the uh, trope that I used was the idea that when you build enough places and things that aren't worth caring about, you'll have a nation that's not worth caring about and a culture that's not worth defending or carrying forward. Right. And on a microcosm these college campuses are becoming places not worth caring about. Well, it's hard to imagine that a lot of these buildings, like that monstrosity we talked about uh, that I saw today uh, on the SUNY campus, you know, it's hard to believe that that kind of thing will not make young people cynical. That's a very dangerous thing to be turning out young people who are automatically programmed for cynicism. And by cynicism, I mean the very strict sense of the word of thinking the worst of mankind. I'm really sorry that the campuses have done such a bad job. If there's any place that really deserves to be a wonderful physical place when you're a young person, it, you know, it's the college campus because the, the campus as a place at that time in your life is taking the is taking the place of the family that you've now left behind you know it's become a microcosm of the world that you're transitioning into and it it should be important that that uh, young people feel that they're in a coherent comprehensible and orderly place and we're not giving them that Jim, a few shows ago, you, you said something like MIT is the ugliest academic neighborhood in the country. And uh, I, I think 
some people took that literally. You weren't literally saying MIT is the absolute worst, right? There's probably a tie. No, it, no, it's, it, but it's right up there. It's and, tied. And, and no, the thing that's so pathetic about it, and we did make this point at the time, was that, you know, this is a school where some of the smartest kids in America go, and they have an architecture school, and they have a school of urban design, and they've done such a terrible job with their own campus, especially, in particular, Vassar Street at the heart of the campus, which they recently designated or declared was going to become the, quote, main street of the campus in the future. And they've done nothing but put up buildings that that, uh, present the ventilation ducts to the sidewalk. Right. So what the hell is going on there? Right. But so on the other hand, can you name some of the, uh, your favorite uh, academic campuses that you've been to? Well, there are so many of them, but I would say that probably among the worst in the nation, surprisingly enough, is the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, which makes most industrial parks look like quaint New England fishing villages. You know, this is like the attack of the giant androids. It's so horrible. And at the center of the University of Massachusetts, of course, is this absurd high-rise library that they built, this 10-story library, and the idiot architects involved never figured that the books would weigh a lot. And what they discovered was, once they brought the books in, that it put so much stress on the exterior skin of the structure, which was a brick veneer, that the bricks started popping out and falling down like nine, ten stories onto people's heads. So for years, they had this kind of scaffold structure around the base of the library that was like an apron of steel and wood, so that you had to pass through this thing so a brick wouldn't fall on your head. <laughs> Sounds like a medieval... Don't get me started. That's a medieval defense uh, technique, I think. Yeah. But okay, so that's another bad one. But let's talk about a good one. Can you name your favorite uh, attractive college campus? Well, there are many of them, and and uh, almost all of them date from, you know, the certainly before World War II, many of them date from, you know, as far back as the, the pre, you know, American uh, nationhood uh, period. Uh, of course, uh, you know, places like Dartmouth and, and, you know, the Ivy League schools and uh, Harvard and, and uh, Princeton all have their, uh, you know, essentially colonial buildings and to some extent uh, uh, quadrangles, ensembles, groups of buildings. Some of them are better than other places. Harvard has become so insisted in this, the greater ghastly organism of modern Cambridge uh, Massachusetts, that the Harvard Yard is really just, it doesn't really function that well as a public space, even though it has fairly good physical form. Right, yeah. It's not the kind of quad that you see people throwing Frisbees on. And, no. Uh, but but it is really neat. I do feel like you're you're walking into some magical wardrobe. Yeah. Because, you know, into another... The, and the, there's the a nar- series of them. I mean, there's a series of these quads within the yard, you know, that may, it's in a, sort of a bunch of them that are kind of all hooked together in this larger super block of old buildings. Yeah, and you walk from Cambridge, uh, Harvard Square, through this these little gates into Harvard yeah. Yard. And, you know, it is like Narnia. You know, you're opening up your wardrobe and entering this new world. Yeah, and, and as it should be. But it really must be said that there are many, 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 many colleges all over America that all have some very good pieces to them, some of them quite extensive. 
almost all of the great Midwestern state universities have older parts of the campus that are still beautiful. Yeah. You know, like the University of Illinois, that part, you know, before it starts falling apart later, you know, later on. They all have them there. And, the, you know, the private four-year colleges, you know, places like Bowdoin and Kenyon uh, that really do still exist at a modest scale and never did go through a hyper-growth kind of problem. You know, they're still quite lovely and serene and tranquil and, and pretty. And, and uh, you know, they have all of the attributes that we would want in good public spaces. Yeah. I, I especially like the ones that are connected to the, the city or village, though, like Harvard, Yale. Well, I mean, this is, again, a matter of continuity. And one of the great things about those old colleges is how they more or less bleed into the surrounding neighborhoods or connect to them well when they did. You know, now the connections have become kind of tenuous for many reasons. Uh, in, around the Ivy League schools, it's because they've grown so much and that the property values have, have become so high that that ends up distorting the relationship between the town and the campus. You know, you end up in the state universities where you have the, the sort of the university slum problem. That distorts the relationship between the town and the campus. You know, but the few places where it actually works well uh, you know, where, where that still occurs, you know, they can be pretty lovely, like Brown University in Providence, where there is a really gentle transition between the fabric of the campus and College Hill uh, and, and all of the normal urban fabric that composes that, you know, the place of normal houses, uh, normal uh, commercial stuff, and it's all pretty wonderful. Yeah. Okay, Jim, well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, brought back some memories of keg stands and <laughs> other things. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll do it again. Thanks. You've been listening to the Kunstler Cast featuring James Howard Kunstler. To leave a listener comment, call toll-free at 866-924-9499. Send email to letters at kunstlercast.com. You can listen to all of our past programs, join our email list, find out how to book Jim to speak in your area, and talk about the show with other listeners at KunstlerCast.com. I'm your host, Duncan Crary. Thanks for listening. Hi.